1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. When we talk about March Madness, we're generally discussing the games themselves. But as the college basketball world discovered this week, that can also extend off the court. On today's show, we'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss Mike White's stunning exit from Gainesville, the start of a men's basketball coaching search, women's hoops preparing for the NCAA tournament, a long-awaited national title for the women's track and field program, and how to properly balance emotion and analytics when it comes to player personnel decisions in the PAT. Then, newly minted national champion and 60-meter hurdle record holder Grace Stark stops by to discuss her blazing performance and how Grant Holloway has served as a critical mentor. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan who loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where animal lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. The roundtable is back after a one-week hiatus. Uh, And man, how many things have happened in in the time that we've been gone. We have FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry on board. And guys, let's start with basketball uh, on, on both sides. First, the men's side obviously a story that I think stunned everybody. Maybe not those closest to the program who knew more of what was happening, but certainly from a fan standpoint, uh, there was this massive ripple across the internet on Sunday afternoon when it was announced that Mike White was not only leaving, but he was going to take the head coaching job at Georgia. Um, Chris, your reaction to this? I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, it's really unprecedented if you look at the timing of it, the destination, the circumstances, it's still hard to believe that this happened, but it did happen. And where does that leave Florida now?
0: Just to backtrack a little bit, remember that the team was still processing what was as devastating a, a, a loss as they've had to deal with in some time. Um, that uh, second round exit against Texas A&M in the, um, the Southeastern Conference tournament in Tampa game, you know, by all accounts, uh, they, they were getting blown out. And A&M just absolutely owned own that game, much uh, different than the, than the one-point game, it seemed at the time, uh, in, in College Station a few weeks earlier. And Florida made a, an, an incredible comeback, um, actually took the lead a few times. I think they had the lead four times. They had a three-point lead in overtime. And then um, uh, uh, Hassan Diara, like 17% shooter from three-point line. In southeastern conference play, wow! He he hit three in the game, and his third one was the dagger with four tenths of a second left uh, in overtime. And now, uh, the Gators obviously had to have that one to keep any hopes of a uh, of a of an NCAA tournament uh, bid alive. Before sundown, they were back in Gainesville, took the bus home, and a couple of days later, you know they're back doing some individual instruction kind of things, getting ready. They know they're they know they're not in the tournament, but they know they got an NIT game. That they, they don't know who they're going to play or whatever. And a team meeting is called uh, Sunday for four o'clock. Um, got pushed back to 4.30 and then to five. Mike White was about 30 minutes late for it. And when he walked in, there was Scott Strickland and uh, the, delivered the news. And, yeah, uh, they, those, those guys weren't expecting it. Um, and so uh, just like that, uh, seven years, um, 100 and I believe 42 wins, uh, four NCAA tournament bursts would have been a fifth, obviously if the COVID hadn't come around, but um, Mike White wasn't happy here. I think uh, he made that clear to the team. Um, I think he made it clear in his actions by going to Georgia, a team that won six games this year was one in 17 in the, in SEC play. Uh, Mike White has won, I believe the number is seven, six, six NCAA tournament games. Okay. uh, uh Georgia hasn't won one this century, I believe, if I'm not wow. mistaken. Oh, so they may, maybe won. They have seven in their history, seven NCAA tournament wins in their history. They went to the final four the first year they ever went there. I think it was 1983. Uh, but Georgia has no tradition. Uh, so the circumstances he goes through with the Bulldogs is different than the one that he inherited here, taking over for uh, a legendary coach. Tom Crean is not was not a legend of Georgia. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, you could say. Hugh Durham was the biggest name to ever coach Georgia basketball. Tubby Smith, obviously. Uh, but those guys are a long time ago. So Mike White will take over a team that is at the rock bottom of the Southeastern Conference. Um, and so it' doesn't work to go but up on that front. Um, obviously, he thought the situation in a 19-13 and 13 season here, he looked at where he was, where he was going, what the, the prospects of – getting the fan base back the fan base that had it kind of uh, turned on him. Uh, he looked at that and said, I'm going to the 1 in 17 team. Mike White got up on his press conference on Tuesday and talked about how excited he was go dogs, the recruiting base, Atlanta and all that stuff and this is a guy who who did everything the right way. I kind of thought if he would if he would go somewhere the, the, the recruiting recruiting a Southeast conference is hard. Uh, you got some, some some teams that you know just just calling it like it is, And you can, you can Google them that haven't played it on the straight and narrow, right. And, and have benefited from doing that in this league. Uh, Just look at some of the recent teams that have won, whether your conference championships or, or the postseason tournament championships Um, they've been on probation the last few years. Uh, One, one is, one is going to go on probation very, very soon. Yes. Yes. That team is in the NSA tournament this week. Um, Anyway, so, He's going to Georgia and it's, it's it, you know, it's going to be hard to recruit Georgia too. Uh, uh, so, so it was a bold move on his part. I think it's one he thought he had to take, you know, now Florida becomes one of, I think there's over 30 job openings.
1: So obviously th- this leaves a, a very surprising opening at Florida. Um, and, and I think as we've seen around the country, there isn't necessarily a very deep, pool of, of big name coaches that are waiting to take those jobs. Like we saw maybe in college football this year, given that Florida's next coach may very well be playing in the NCAA tournament this week, where do the Gators go from here? What do you think that they are looking for in Mike White's replacement?
0: Right, for the people that are talk about, well, uh, just go get a big name coach. The big name coaches make big time money. They also are winning big. That's why they're big time coaches. Okay. And, uh, they also are in good places. Why would you leave there? Like, so, I mean, you could you can give me like a, a name of somebody who, who is out at some uh, place where it's, it's been really, really said, Well, just go get him. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. That's unrealistic. Uh, the, the Florida search committee will have quite a number of names on the list. Some of them will be big names. Some of them will be medium sized names, You know, what you always see uh, and I'm not saying this is this is the direction it's headed, but you always see that that sexy, fashionable guy who, you know, takes a mid-major from a 12 seed and, you know, uh, gets to the sweet 16. And he, he jumps out of nowhere. I, I like I said I don't know what's going to, but this is the silly season for stuff like that to happen. But there's a bunch of openings in the country. Um, there's some good openings. Maryland is a great job. Uh, people look at Louisville as a great job. I would put Florida maybe uh, uh, you know not quite in the in the, in the realm of those two, but certainly you can you you can you can have a conversation about it. But uh, um, uh, the person that takes uh, Mike White's place. Won't be in the Mike White situation. He won't have to step in and and take over for Billy Donovan. That was a, a very difficult thing, as Ron Zook found out when he took over for uh, Steve Spurrier. Um, uh, the expectations uh, to some to some point, you can you can even make the case are 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 unrealistic. If if people think you gotta you gotta win championships everywhere, compete for championships, sure. Um, that's that's what the Gators want to do. They want to compete for championships. And um, the best Mike White's teams finished over seven years were second place in the Southeastern conference. And the best they did in the postseason tournament. Um, of course, that's another way to get a championship was uh, reaching the semifinals one time. So all, all that, all that is fair criticism of him, but now you got to go find somebody who can do better than what he did. So that's the charge of this search committee over there in the stadium. And, um, where it lands uh, may happen quickly, may take uh, may take some time, um, but I don't think anyone has anyone knows where they sit there and throw darts and come up with names, and maybe they'll get the right one. But uh, uh, there's no there's no automatic slam dunks out there by any stretch of the imagination. Meanwhile, up at Georgia, they think uh, they think they got a pretty good coach up there because he has a track record for winning big. He won. You know what do you average, 25 wins at Louisiana Tech? True, mid-major, of course. You go get a mid-major, that, that that happens a lot. But the guy also averaged more than 20 wins a season at the University of Florida, and if they can get him uh, to do that up there, uh, they'll build statues outside Stegum and Coliseum for him.
1: There's a lot of intrigue, obviously, on the men's side right now, wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, on the the flip side of that, the women's team, who no one expected to be in the NCAA tournament when this year started, uh, they will be dancing. They will be dancing up in stores, Connecticut. Um, and Scott, let's talk about you know how they got here obviously a tough way to end the year losing Kiki Smith in the tournament was just a brutal loss for a team that's had so much adversity. Um, and now, you know, they they head up into the tournament with a much lower seed than I think most people believe they deserved. Uh, and a, a matchup against a, an in-state opponent as they try and keep this magical story going in, in 2022.
2: Yeah, Adam, we're a little bit of role reversal here, obviously, with the, the Florida basketball programs right now. we we usually talk about the men being in the tournament at this time of year. And instead in 2022, the women are headed to the tournament. And, you know, let's, let's start first of all with, you know, I'll address just the seating, uh, you know, they're in a number 10 seed. They're headed up to stores Connecticut to play number seven seed UCF. Uh, and then of course the winner most likely gets Yukon who opens up against Mercer uh, uh, late this weekend in the first round. So, you know, you uh, felt bad that Gators got a bad seed, and there's no other way to say it. I mean, you know, Kentucky got a six, Georgia got a six. They had big wins against both of those programs and finished higher than both of them in the SEC standings. Yeah, so I mean, you know, they they're probably not going to say that publicly, Kelly Ray Finley, but I know I could I'll say it for her, and I'm sure other media people have said it as well. I mean, yeah, they they kind of got a bad draw in the seating. So first of all, that's not the way you want to start the tournament. But second of all, you know, you certainly, it's unfortunate with what happened to Kiki Smith. She is their, their engine, their heartbeat. Uh, And for her to have that knee injury uh, late in the season and, and be unavailable now for the postseason, it's a big blow to this team. And, you know, I don't know what kind of factor that was in the, the tournament selection committees thinking. I'm guessing it had a factor, played a factor. Uh, still low, this is what they have to deal with. You know, Kelly Ray Finley uh, in her press conference this week to kind of preview just going into the tournament, she says, "Look, you know, this is a team that has faced adversity all year. We love the underdog role. and guess what?" They're going into the tournament with that mindset because they are a big underdog. Uh, they had the first-round matchup against UCF, which is going to be a difficult one for them. UCF's a, a very aggressive defensive team, uh, and you're without your your point guard and Kiki Smith, who, you know, the, the Gators value, obviously, her ability to, to kind of break down opposing defenses. And now that's going to be called upon... Zippy Broughton's going to have to play more of that role. And I look at this matchup, they're going to have to have a couple of things happen for them to, to advance and perhaps face UConn in that next round. They're going to have to have big games from Zippy Broughton and Nina Ricards uh, from, from outside. They're going to have to have uh, some role players who step up and produce uh, some of those uh, points that they usually get from Kiki Smith. They're also Jordan Merritts going into the tournament. Kind of day to day, still recovering from concussion protocol from hitting her head on the court late in the season. So, not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, Adam, for these Gators. But I think Kelly Ray Finley probably said it best is look, you know, we're here. We've dealt with adversity all year. and And this means a lot to these players. I mean, this is big for them because we know that the Gators have not been in the postseason or at least the NCAA tournament in six years. Uh, Not a lot of people – well, actually, let's just be truthful. I don't think anybody had (laughs) had them them getting there this year, and yet they had a uh, just kind of a Cinderella season for the program that needed something positive to happen. They built all this momentum, and unfortunately, a lot of it has died late in the season. But guess what? They can go up there and kind of – I guess, rewrite the story a little bit if they can pull off the win against UCF and then, you know, most likely face UConn in a very hostile uh, environment. It's going to be a UConn home game, obviously, uh, if that matchup comes to fruition. Um, And we'll see what they can do. But I I think they're just trying to make the best of, of a difficult situation in terms of Momentum. You know, they, they had a lot of momentum and it, it's kind of gone away. And now can they rebuild some? And that's, I think, they're her message to this team and just embrace the challenge, embrace the opportunity, because guess what? You guys haven't been here. you worked hard to make it here. Now you're here. Let's make the best of it.
1: So there's obviously a lot going on uh, with both basketball programs for very different reasons. We're also at a key point in the year for Gator football. Spring practice got underway this week, which I believe is phase three in the the Billy Napier plan. Um, Guys, tell us about spring football. What are some of the storylines you're tracking as this gets underway? And, And we really get the first tangible substance of the Billy Napier era.
2: Yeah, for Billy Napier, it's a a chance for him to really get to know his team on a different level. I mean, you know, they had their first spring practice uh, under Napier on Tuesday night, and, uh, you know, just listening to him talk, I mean, it was a learning experience for everybody. I mean, he mentioned that it was his first time ever seeing Anthony Richardson throw football live. And, of course, uh, speaking of storylines, a lot of us didn't even think we'd see Anthony Richardson throwing the ball live this early in camp after off-season knee injury, uh, knee surgery, but he was cleared uh, by doctors on Monday, and uh, you know the next day he's out there. So that gave him a little spark. So I think the quarterback battle is clearly beyond first year under a new coach storyline. I think the quarterback situation is clearly number one on the the storyline list because you have. A guy out there in Anthony Richardson who fans love, who, you know, they think he's the future. And yet another storyline developed after practice last night. Emery Jones spoke and everyone kind of walked in there assuming, okay, Emery's going to be low key and just talk about, you know, he's still glad to be here. But he made it clear that he plans to still be here because of Billy Napier uh, selling him on his skill set and watching film really they they he was very close to leaving he said but he decided to stay because of Billy Napier and, and just what they told him from watching film from Emory they think he's a really good player and that they can they can make him a better quarterback so it, it's going to be really fascinating just to see how this does play out because we're talking about Emory and Anthony but you also got Jack Miller the transfer from Ohio State obviously he didn't come to Florida just to sit behind Anthony Richardson and, and Emory Jones, who you probably expected to be gone. And then you got the freshman Jalen Kitna and Carlos Del Wilson. So we're talking five quarterbacks in camp. All five guys took reps yesterday. Obviously, uh, Anthony Richardson, Emory Jones took most of w- from the what I saw. So it, it, it's just, you know, where does this – how does this end up? Uh, where does this go? I can can guarantee you there will be some attrition at some point before, uh, what, September 3rd rolls around. Uh, But at the same time, I can't tell you who it's going to be and who's the starting quarterback. It's kind of like what you guys were talking about with the Florida basketball job right now. I don't think anybody knows who's going to be the next coach as we sit here and talk today. I don't think anybody knows really who's going to be the starting quarterback against Utah, Uh, but there's plenty of options there. And uh, Billy Napier has a lot of uh, work cut out in determining that. And I think for him right now, with every position, he says, you know, there's no way that he could name any person at any position after the first spring practice. It's open competition across the board. And uh, I think that's what makes spring camp this year more interesting than most is because there's just so many unknowns and, and none more so than that starting quarterback position.
0: And I know a lot of fans probably don't want to hear that about Emory Jones because, I mean, he took as much heat the last year as Mike White has, right? Maybe more. You know, I, and this is just speculative on my part, and I can't say. I could be 100% wrong, and, and Billy Napier or anybody associated with him listens to this, please tell me I'm wrong, but – I. I don't see – I I don't know that he's – this guy is going to come in and, and throw the ball all over the place. I think he likes to run the ball with his quarterback. So uh, who's to say Emory Jones can't be a guy like that? Now, we know Anthony Richardson can too. We also don't know if Anthony Richardson can stay healthy, right? We know Emory yeah. Jones can stay stay healthy and avoid taking hits and whatever. But the little bit I watched of, of Louisiana football, their quarterback, uh, really good game manager, and a guy who could really run – and make big plays with his arm when he had to, but uh, it wasn't this, you know, Steve Spurrier drop back all the time and, or getting the shotgun wherever the case and, and pitch it around, you know, 45, 50 times a game. Uh, I think he, he probably wants balance, but uh, I think he wants to run the ball. And I, th- I think, I think, I think that's okay. That's okay in this day and age from the formations everybody's playing to, but back to Scott's original point. Every player on that team wants to hear going into a spring that there are no predetermined uh, notions relative to uh, positions. So that makes those guys run around uh, faster and be more encouraged about their situation, whatever it may be. And you can tell that um, – you could probably say this just about every every first spring practice under a new coach, but, you know, the the new vibe was evident. They are all dressed the same like you promised, right, Scott?
2: Yeah, I mean – he spoke afterward, as did Mark Hockey. The small uh, details count. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, yes. And 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 the player signed off at that, and uh, there weren't any going to be any things that, that kind of slipped by. And, and those position coaches, they wanted to see some snap. Uh, they wanted to see movement fast, and they wanted tempo, and I think they got that. And if I took anything away uh, from that practice that kind of spoke to me a little bit more, going back to the Florida basketball situation, um, Billy Naper is obviously a very detail oriented, forward thinking person. The Gators need to find a coach like that who's on the forefront of this, what is clearly a new age of the sport and not just transfer portal, but I'm talking about uh, uh, the, the, the NIL uh, possibilities. Um, you know, obviously that's not something that rears itself at a spring practice, but it's certainly something that's happening in the background and you can't help, think of um, where the game is headed when you walk past that new football facility, which, you know, in a few weeks or months, we'll be able to talk to a little more in length. Hopefully we'll get, uh, certainly we'll get tours of that and be able to speak to that. But um, Florida basketball needs a guy who is ahead of the game in a little bit. And maybe someone he's not going to be able to recruit right away with Kirby Smart and Nick Saban, but he can think differently and sell something different uh, to a program down here that is certainly tradition based has won big before and certainly can win big again.
1: And one of the reasons expectations are high for football as they are for basketball, uh, Florida is frequently known as the everything school. And we saw another example of that last weekend when the women's indoor track team won a national championship. Um, uh, just another incredible accomplishment for Mike Holloway and the track program that he runs in addition to helping out with the U.S. national team at the Olympics. I mean, he has built a machine there that, that Scott has mostly been winning titles on the men's side. So this
2: is is pretty cool to see the women break through as well. It's been 30 years, Adam, since the women, the Florida women have won a national championship in women's track and the indoor team uh, finally snapped that streak and it's been building. I mean, what you just said about Coach Holloway. I mean, the guy has won nine on the men's side over the last decade, and now they, uh, they've they been knocking at the door on the women's side, and they finally came through uh, with the Indoor National Championship. And, you know, now the, here they are right on the uh, wake of that. They're going into the outdoor season, and there's already talk about the men and women competing for national titles in the outdoor season. So, uh, but, you know, let's just talk specifically for a second about what the women did. I mean, we, we talked a lot about Georgia-Florida here with Mike White going to going up to Georgia to become head coach. Well, Jasmine Moore transferred from Georgia to Florida this spring, and she goes out and wins uh, the triple jump title, uh, breaking her own collegiate record. That was a big point earner for the Gators. Uh, you know, Natricia Hooper finished second in the triple jump behind Moore. And you've got Talitha Diggs scored in the 400 meters. Grace Starks, uh, Samir Killerbrew. I'm just reading these names off of, of what they did in the 60. Uh, but I think Jasmine Moore was the one that, that really kind of opened my eyes because we had, we wrote a story on her a couple of weeks ago, uh, just talking about how big of an addition she was to the program. And boy, did she answer. And, uh, of course, it wasn't just her. They, they, You have to have a deep lineup uh, to win at these events, and and Holloway has built that on the women's side uh, to match what he's done on the men's side in recent years. And um, just hat tip to the guy. I mean, 10 national titles, guys, yeah. in, in less than 10 years. I mean, when you think of the greatest Gators coaches in any sport, I mean, Mike Holloway is right there in my, my top five. I don't know. He's not going to make the Mount Rushmore because it's track, guys. But if you just (laughs) if you just do coaches at Florida, you know, we all know who the names are. You got to mention Mike Holloway in that list. So congratulations again to the the women's track
1: program on that incredible accomplishment. Uh, And that will take us into this week's PAT, which is inspired by a bittersweet bit of news That happened this week, which is the Braves' decision essentially to move on from Freddie Freeman as the face of their franchise, allow him to go elsewhere and start building uh, younger and for the future. And I've had a lot of discussions about this with friends, Um, some maybe you'd even call arguments, and and it comes down to this kind of the, the battle between practicality and emotion. Sports are inherently emotional. Yet in this case, the argument being made by most people that support the move is for the long-term health of the team, there's a better chance that in four or five years that the guy who they got to replace Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson, would be better than Freddie Freeman produces. But then on the counter, here's the face of your franchise who just won you a World Series and you're letting that individual walk. My question to you guys is where do you fall on this spectrum with with it, and p- apply it to your team, guys have meant a lot to you. How much should you be driven by analytics and predictive tendencies as opposed to the emotion that goes into your favorite players, your favorite teams, and the inherent unpredictability that sports can provide?
0: You you can talk all you want about analytics, but I mean, I mean Freddie Freeman, yeah, yes, he's a face of franchise. He's a great player too. I mean, my goodness, gracious. Right. I mean. Do the, do the Braves win the world championship without him? No. So, so they're anticipating winning another one with, without him, I guess. I don't, I don't know, but I look, there's no salary cap in baseball. I know all the luxury tax and all that other crap or anything. You can pay a guy, whatever you want. And I, I went through this a couple years ago when, um, when the, when the nationals didn't sign Anthony Rendon. And I know his numbers haven't been great, uh, as with the angels, but they had to pick whether to choose whether to sign Strasburg, who was the MVP of the of the World Series that year, or Anthony Rendon, who batted like 400 in the playoffs. Uh, and I think at one time he was 11 for 11 and with five walks or something with runners in scoring position after the fifth inning or some kind of ridiculous thing like that in the postseason. So he was their most clutch hitter by far. Strasburg obviously had a great year, but and they they just. They didn't sign him, and they they could have they could have said they could have paid luxury tax. They could have afforded it. I this is ridiculous to me because I I like I think Freddie Freeman for all the times that as a national fan I've seen him like he hits a three run homer in the first inning of every game I've ever seen him play. <laughs> so uh, I, I mean I I just I just I I can't fathom the fact that they would look at that guy um, and not only the face but just a, a class act across the board. Yeah. Say yeah we're good you get you gave us our ring yeah we're good that's it it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me i mean he would be uh he would be like ryan zimmerman to the nationals in terms of the yeah. faith except except times like 10 because of because of i mean i i think his numbers are probably a lot better than probably ryan zimmerman it's a shame how old is Freddie freeman scott
2: I think 32 33 32
0: 33 so he still has plenty of baseball left in him so I don't know. Maybe Washington will sign him. I don't know. Uh, uh, but I mean, that's that the emotion versus analytics and all that stuff is the, to go back to your to your original question. I I think is is can be overthought sometimes. Um, I, you're in Atlanta, Adam. The backlash up there in terms of this, you know, can't be favorable in the Braves in the Braves direction.
1: No. And, and I, I would argue, too. And I made this point to, to a couple of friends. The analytics didn't think the Braves had a chance at winning the World Series last year. So the game is not played on paper. And, and beyond that, how many championships, if you want to boil it down to a, a sabermetrics type argument, how many championships have the Oakland A's won in 20 years of doing business almost this exact same way? I don't believe they've even won a playoff series in that time. So while thinking this way, can help you win games the regular season. It doesn't account for the intangibles that help teams win championships, and those intangibles seem to be, you know, over overwhelming when you talk about someone like Freddie Freeman.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a great conversation, and one that's obviously is kind of, you know, when you talk about the fan versus the analytics. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Braves fan, and I hate to see Freddie Freeman leave because I agree with everything that Chris just said and everything you just said. Having said that, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm actually kind of in the middle on this one, and only because baseball is kind of the sport that I follow the, the closest at the professional level. And I really understand in some ways the Braves thinking here because can they win the World Series without Freddie Freeman this year? Yeah, I think they probably can, but is it going to be the same? It definitely won't. I mean, and what I mean by that is, he was the face of the franchise, and you hate to see those players leave because it was such a feel-good story when they finally won it with him in his eleventh or twelfth. You got to remember Freddie came up to the Braves, I think right. He had just turned twenty, back in the early two mm-hmm. thousands or early uh, late two thousands, and he evolved. He's been one of the best, most consistent players in baseball since then. But uh, from a business standpoint, you know, I think baseball owners look at you know, Albert Pujols, the yeah. A-Rod contracts, those kind of contracts. And I haven't dug deep enough. I'm, I don't think anybody's at 32 is going to give Freddie Freeman a, a 10-year deal like A-Rod and, and Pujols got. And those contracts p- proved that, you know, they were bad investments long-term for those teams. But, I you know, so if Freddie, if he was asking for a three-year deal, I'm giving it to him if I'm the brace, but I don't know if he's wanting a five or six year deal. He or, wanted
1: yeah, he wanted five to six years, which was yeah. the, that that was the problem.
2: Which I can understand, you know, his numbers I can I can almost guarantee you, you know, they're gonna start dropping off. Maybe not this year or even next year, but it's it's proven that mid thirties, those guys drop off unless they're on steroids like Roger <laughs> Clemens and Barry Bonds. It's true. Their numbers skyrocketed. But hopefully and I'm hoping that era is over, although baseball has agreed now to stop testing for steroids. So we could easily see that kind of sneak back into the game. That's just something that's way beyond this conversation or question. Mm-hmm. But so I, I see both sides of it. I'm I'm disappointed that they did, you know, just look at let's let's take it to the NFL. The Patriots said okay. And I don't know if it was all on the Patriots, but they Somebody in that organization, whether it was Bill Belichick or the owner, said, "You know, we can't give Tom fifty million a year to play for us. Now it's probably not going to be wise." Uh, But he goes to the Bucks. He obviously can still play, and he's still going to play, and he's coming Uh, back. Yeah. So that was the between that and Mike White the other night at my birthday's dinner that just uh, threw my Twitter uh, out of whack. But uh, so you know, sad to see Freddie go. Hopefully, Matt Olson can. Be a really good player, but I do think they can still have great success and compete for the World Series because I did not think Jorge Soler, Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall. If you had any of those players being like huge contributors during the World Series run when they were about, what, 500 at midseason or who's the other guy they got for the Dodgers? Jock Peterson or Jock Peterson. I always said, no, man, Freddie Freeman is going to be more important than all those guys. He was important. But all those guys play huge roles, too. So
1: Sports are driven by emotion. Also, at the end of the day, it is a business. And that's why you're always going to have conversations like this and decisions that have to be made. And we can't determine if it was the right decision probably until three or four years down the road. So put a pin in it. We'll revisit it in three or four years. Uh, For now, we do have to go because you guys have a lot of things to cover, especially Scott headed up to Storrs, Connecticut to follow the women's basketball team. And obviously any news that breaks with basketball on the men's side, Chris will have that. So follow these guys at Gators Scott at Gators Chris and check out their content at FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. Have a good one.
2: All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. See
1: you. College athletics are largely ruled by team sports, so it's easy to forget that future Olympic champions are also made on campuses around the country. Grace Stark is certainly on that trajectory following her record-setting time in the 60-meter hurdles, which was a key component of Florida's national title run last week at the NCAA's indoor championships. We spoke to the sophomore about her remarkable performance and the glory it delivered, though she still found it hard to believe.
3: Uh, it really still hasn't sunk in yet. I know it's something that I've been wanting for so long, especially since I've gotten into college. And you know, the last couple national championships didn't go the way I wanted them to, but it's just great coming back and see all the support from my teammates, that you know, and all the support from the school. And they already had like a banner up just for the team winning the national championship. So it was really cool to see all that.
1: Yeah, you talk about something that you've really thought about since you got to school. It's funny because I feel like in, in a lot of other sports, let's say if you're a football player, right, you dream of I'm going to win a national championship. Then I'm going to win a Super Bowl where on the the dreams and aspirations list of a of a young sprinter or hurdler is winning a collegiate national title. Or does that really only come into focus once you get to school when you join that team?
3: I think it comes to focus when you get into the recruiting process. So as like a sophomore, junior, senior in high school, when you start to like look at schools and you see how you're doing and you see your potential and it's kind of goes to where, you know, in the recruiting process, you kind of just want to pick which school is best, but you kind of have to know what you want to do at that school before you like choose a school. So I wanted to be a national champion in high school, wanted to be one in college. And I knew I had to pick the right school and the right coach. So I think, just in high school, it's just really when it came to light.
1: So going back to the beginning for you, can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up, and, and the early years for you?
3: So I grew up in White Lake, Michigan. I'm actually adopted. So I was adopted from birth, so I didn't really have, you know, any transition to coming with like a new family, and everything. And my family's been super supportive and stuff like that. I was a gymnast for three or four years before I started track. And my mom noticed the speed that I would have on like going towards the ball or when I take a tumbling pass. She noticed that and dragged me to a track meeting for like a club team that I really did not want to go to because I did not want to give up gymnastics because it was like my first love. And then she was like, just do the summer team just for a little bit. And if you don't like it, I'll put you back in gymnastics or we'll go back to gymnastics. And I loved it. And I've never turned back.
1: Hmm. You mentioned being adopted. and I read that about you in in your your bio. Um, I guess it's tricky since that's all you ever knew. But to what degree has being adopted played a role in, in your life story or maybe changed your perspective as you've grown up?
3: I think it just makes me appreciate my family more. I mean, being adopted... I don't look at my family and see myself as any different. I always just feel like I'm so included and loved and stuff like that. So I think it just—I don't know. I just—I just love being adopted because it makes me feel like my family bond is so much more special.
1: Hmm. Uh, In terms of the the gymnastics background that you mentioned, how far along were you on that? Because I know with gymnastics, we've interviewed a lot of gymnasts on this show. Um, you have to make a decision almost like from birth that you're going to be an elite gymnast and get on that path. So how far down the road were you and how difficult was it to then take a turn away from it?
3: I wasn't going to be some elite gymnast. I was going to be with the girls on the UF team. But at the time, I thought I could have been a pretty good gymnast and then I didn't really realize what it took to be an elite gymnast. In my mind, I thought I was going to be one of those great gymnasts, and I thought I was giving up a lot, but then I realized once I got into track and got a little bit older that I was really probably just giving up like a high school dream. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the funny thing about track is that there's just so many directions you can go, and that's, I feel like it's something that, that people like myself who don't follow the sport closely only realize when we get into an Olympic cycle, just how many different disciplines there are. So once you ventured into the track and field world, how did you figure out what was for you and which areas you could really excel?
3: We, my mom put me in like the 800 and the 400 and I'm not a distance runner. I don't have the best endurance. And someone was like, you don't want to put grace in those events. Like <laughs> going to be like terrible. And my mom has no idea. She's thinking once around the track, twice around the track is no big deal. Right. And but she knows absolutely nothing. And they pulled me aside. and were like, we're not going to do that. We're going to put you in 100 and 200 put me in those. I did well, but those weren't, you know, I didn't love those events. I mean, I do the hundred and I love the hundred, but we just wanted to find like an event that I just was so passionate about. And so then I was in middle school and they were like, we need somebody in the 55 meter hurdles. And I was like, ah, uh, I guess I'll do it. Like I'll take the chance. And did it, loved it. And when I went to the club team, they were like, all right, what events do you do? I do the hurdles. So I just decided I'm just going to be a hurdler from there on out.
1: I always wonder this. And I feel like I asked, we've had Grant Holloway on this show, I think three or four times and maybe multiple times I've asked him just because I I can't figure it out. How does one become a hurdler? Like what, what in your mind says, you know what, I'm going to run fast, but also I'm going to I'm gonna do these obstacles in the middle of it just to make it more dangerous.
3: You know, I always like a challenge and I think running the 100 presents a great challenge, but why not put some barriers in the way? And I think at the time, nobody wanted to run the hurdles because they saw it as a challenge and it was also scary because you do just have barriers and you're trying to go so fast and you just have barriers coming up and coming up. And I think I was just willing to do it and then it kind of just happens. I don't think it's, I don't know, like I think it just happens.
1: I remember watching even the the Winter Olympics a few weeks ago and trying to figure out how is it possible that these skiers, these snowboarders can learn these tricks because of how dangerous it is. And then it was explained to me that they practice those into water or they go into foam pits. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's making me think of for, for hurdling. How do you train that from the start? Are you ju- Are there like little hurdles and then you graduate to larger ones? How do you start training for that if you've never done it?
3: There are, there are little hurdles and some people do use them. With my, my experience, kind of just went into it because they told me like, the day before that I was running the hurdles at the meet. So I was like, all right, we're going to try and go over one and we're just going to see how it goes. And I kind of was like a run, stop, jump over and then run again. And I think that's how people start is just like easing their way into it and building up and then starting to use the speed and starting to make it one motion. It's kind of like a progression type thing.
1: You mentioned earlier that you know you start to to frame these goals of winning championships when you get into the recruiting process, because then you're starting to get a sense of, well, here's where I need to go to do my discipline, and so on and so forth. What do you remember about that recruiting process? And at what point did Florida become a uh, prominent in that search?
3: I remember getting a message from Coach Mann pretty early on, around like my junior year, and. Um, I knew Grant Holloway, but I wasn't – Florida wasn't a school that I looked at crazy from, like, a sophomore. They were, like – I was a big Michigan fan, so my Mm -hmm. dream was to always go to Michigan. And then when I started getting, like, recruited by other schools, Florida definitely popped out because they do have Grant. And then Coach Holloway is a huge name and a great hurdle coach and all the other coaches as well. So then I just, you know, kept them – kept talking to them, kept getting to know all the coaches. And it wasn't until my home visit, I coach Holloway surprised me. And coach man was there as well. And the connection that I built with them, I felt was so strong in that moment that I remember texting one of my club coaches that I'm going to Florida. And this is months before I take my official visit, my senior. But I remember texting my coaches. I'm going to Florida. He's like, you have so many visits left. And I was like, just the connection with the coaches i felt it would be so hard to beat
1: and and you hear people say that in the recruiting process what maybe it's it's hard to break it down but what is it why was that connection so strong was it about personality was it their understanding of your goals that you believed they could get you there what was it that made that such a, a lightning connection
3: i think all of my coaches have a really good heart and i think aside from wanting me to be a better athlete leaving Florida. They wanted me to be a better person. And I think that set out to me and my parents where they weren't only going to make me a great athlete. They were going to make me a great person as well. In terms of like track, I was a big fan of the sport when I got into it and I did watch a lot of YouTube videos, watched, did like a lot of studying in my area. And I just felt that those coaches understood that and we're like, all right, she's will buy into this program. And Coach Holly of he's a very technical coach, but does work with a lot of speed and values that. And I think if I could get the best of both worlds, speed and technique, that this was the school for me. Hmm.
1: So being from Michigan, that is a uh, it's a long way from Gainesville. It's a drastically different climate, different lifestyle, I imagine. Um, what were the biggest challenges in making that change once you arrived in Gainesville?
3: The biggest challenge was being away from my family, for sure. I mean, it's just my parents and my brother. So we're all very close. So it was going to be hard being away from them. But we were in the position to where we were going to be able to see each other for Christmas and Thanksgiving even and possibly some meets here and there. Also, the weather. I'm not a big heat person, and it can get very, very hot, especially during fall training. So that was like a big like culture shock Um, because I love the winter, love all the activities you can do in the winter, and I'd rather be cold than hot. And here you're just going to be hot, so that was like a big change.
1: Have you adjusted since then? I feel like you'd have to at some point you'd have to embrace the heat, right? Or or still no?
3: You would think um, (laughs) I still definitely complain about if it's hot, but I guess I'm just more used to it. So I just I complain and then I get over it.
1: (laughs) Right, right. It probably helps too when you're in the indoor season. Um, The heat isn't quite, heat's not quite as prominent. Um, And and about that, I have to ask a very, this is a very layman question. Um, Beyond the obvious, right? I understand the difference between indoors and outdoors. Um, The indoor track season versus the outdoor track season. How is that different for you tangibly outside of the obvious?
3: I personally love indoor season. It's super big in Michigan So I think that helps with a lot of people come to college and I've never ran indoor before because a lot of them are from the South. Mm -hmm. So I love the indoor season. I think it's a great way to connect with other athletes, a great way to see where you're at because outdoor season is the important one. Outdoor, everyone looks at outdoor as top tier and really to see what you, you can do as an athlete and indoor. Yes, there's great times posted, but a lot of people are just like, Indoor happened, it happened, and let's get ready for the outdoor season, but I love to cherish the indoor season as well.
1: So is indoor seen as as like the, the training ground for outdoor? And if, if so, why is that? Is it, I mean, the distances are the same, right? I mean, what what's different about it?
3: Um, Just like the, it's only, there's like 200 tracks and there, some are banked. So you're not getting like a full, like, I guess this is mainly for like two and 400 runners and the distance runners it's just like a different feel. Now you're going for the 400 you're going twice around for the 800, you're going four times around and there's just different ways to run it. Especially like the 200, you have two banks and it's a full lap versus half a lap and no bank. So just sometimes it can be like a little difficult to balance and people just aren't used to, it, especially if you come from Florida, there's no indoor track here. Right. So they're not going to do indoor season and then they're going to come to college and be like, "Whoa, what am I doing?
1: So, track and field features a lot of different disciplines um what are some track events that you could not see yourself doing where you look at what your teammates do and you say i'm glad that you do that because i cannot do that
3: anything over like 200 meters i just it's just not not for me those are i mean a 400 is not for me the four by four the you know the 800 those are just not my forte um so kudos to my teammates who can handle it and do amazing at it but they got that <laughs>
1: <laughs> you uh, you mentioned grant holloway earlier uh mm-hmm. and so a cool connection between the two of you because you are now the men's and the women's record holder in the 60 meters um i know he's a lot older than you but what impact has he had on you how much time have you been able to spend with him during your time at florida
3: i spent a lot of time with him uh he trains here still. And sometimes I do end up, our practices do overlap or we'll schedule a practice to, you know, get one out together, even though we don't always do the same workouts or going against each other, just the energy and the encouragement that he brings to practice is great. And it helps me out through practice. And even I talk to him quite often. So even during prep for a race or just to have a conversation about where's your head out? What do you think I can do better? How, have you been through this process and whatever? He's just really, really helpful. And that's
1: something I think is so cool about some of the Olympic sports, track swimming. Yeah, you, know, you don't have you don't have NFL players um, coming to, to do workouts with a football team, right? That's just they're they're in a different world. But I've always thought that it, it's so interesting that you have Olympic champions and they do their training, even though they've long since graduated with their college coach around the current student athletes. Um, what has it meant for you and what will it continue to mean to have access to some of the best in the world at what they do still working on the same campus and in the same practices that, that you are?
3: It means a lot. I think it shows a lot to Florida's program and coach Holloway that people still want to be with him and people still want to be coached by him. And I think that played a lot into my coming here is that I saw athletes are still staying here after college. or he's still willing to coach them? And it's great that he has them at practice around them and doesn't completely have them like alienated away from us because they bring good insight. They give us good advice and they tell us, Hey, we've been here before. Let me give you some advice. This is how it can be done. This is how we did it. So it just, they're just such great role models and to be able to have such easy access to them. is great.
1: And you mentioned Coach Holloway. There's there's multiple Holloways here. We've moved on from Grant. We're talking about Coach Holloway.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: what is it? What is it that he's done that has impacted you since you've been on campus? I know you talked about that relationship being so strong since he started coaching you. What are some of the ways that he has helped you to grow both on and off the track?
3: I think you know he is a very godly man. He is very level headed and uses good advice, but he's also very fun. So I think having that at practice and he always says that I'm laughing at him and he doesn't understand why. I just think he's so funny. The things that he <laughs> does, so, so he always cracks these jokes and he does it so effortlessly and it's just so funny. So I think him being able to have fun at practice and you know, be super inspiring at practice as well just really helps out. And I really appreciate his coaching. He's a very technical coach, but he utilizes the speed. And I think I can be very nitpicky when it comes to my technique and he can be as well. And I think I appreciate that more because it'd be bad if I was super nitpicky and he was just like, no, you're fine. Mm -hmm. I think when he has like a balance of, I am a coach, you... I know what to do but also let me listen to my athlete and let's work together to be better
1: when you have time away from the track what do you enjoy doing I know there's probably not a lot of it to go around but when you do have that free time uh, what what are your go-to hobbies
3: Uh, I love getting coffee and I love just like hanging out with my friends you know there's not a lot of time to hang out away from your teammates Because not that it's a problem, but we're always together, we're always training, we're always at weights, we're always traveling. But, you know, just hanging out with other friends and being able to, you know, interact and connect with other people is great outside of practice, too. Hmm.
1: Do you go to any gymnastics meets and think about what could have been if you had gone down a different path?
3: I have gone to some gymnastics meets and I've watched them and I'm like, I'm glad my mom pulled me because... That's not what I was going to be doing. And it's kind of what I thought I was going to be doing when I was younger. And those girls are just so amazing and they've accomplished and do so much. And I'm glad and they are doing amazing, but it couldn't be me. <laughs> um,
1: what is the last movie you saw that made you cry?
3: Um, my favorite movie is Remember the Titans. And I cry at it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, like, and it's... It's my favorite movie. My dad texts me like a quote from it before every meet, and every time like I watch it, I just get so sad because it's such a great movie and it presents such a great message. But at the end, it is so sad, mm-hmm. but and I just cry at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So my my brother in law was an extra in Remember the Titans, and in, oh, the scene, ah. in the scene where they're getting on the, I think it's when they're getting on the buses to go to camp. Uh, or when they come back, you can see him in the background and he always does a freeze frame and he'll say, look, I was in a movie with Denzel because it's like Denzel's head is here and you yeah. see his head just behind it. That's his that's his fun party story um, that I have now told for him on this podcast. <laughs> um, but to take it a step further, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the remember the Titans music like the theme from that that's what they use in the Olympic montage every time they close the Olympics. So, even a few weeks ago when they went off the air from Beijing, they had the big montage from with the, the music from the Remember the Titans. And every time it gets me, I'm not crying because of the Olympics. I'm crying because the music reminds me of the movie. And then it all yeah. starts going together. A um, couple final things for you. Uh, you've, as we noted, you've just set an NCAA record, you're a national champion. How do you grow your goals from here? What is next for you now that you've accomplished something that most people, you know, never will in their lifetimes?
3: I just want to keep the momentum going, especially for me and for my team. You know, we just won uh, an indoor title and it was the first one in 30 years. And we do have the potential to do it outdoor and we just have to keep the same momentum and same focus. And I think I carry that as a standard for myself and I know my teammates carry that as a standard for them. And I just want to continue that forward.
1: We've said the word Olympics a lot of times, at least I've said the word Olympics a lot of times, because when you think about track and field events, that's naturally where your mind goes to. If you're a, you know, a casual sports fan, like I am, um, what what does that look like is that something that you you see in your future what are the steps to get there i i have no idea what the olympic path is relative to where you are in your collegiate journey so uh how how do you how do you prepare for that what does that look like
3: so last year was the olympics and this year is worlds so worlds is kind of just like it's more just like a track thing really and it will just it will do trials the same way we would as we would for the olympics and Kind of the standards are a little bit different in terms of making the team, but Worlds is this year, and the trials is right after NCAAs, so just go for that team first and just take each team as it goes. But definitely the Olympics has always been a goal of mine. So
1: is 2024, is that what you're shooting for? Does it go beyond that? Is 2024, is that the goal?
3: 2024 is the goal.
1: Okay, we will see you in Paris. Um, Until then, uh, congratulations on your incredible success on winning a national championship, setting a record, uh, and we wish you a lot of luck as you continue growing.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales.